You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Psalm chapter 32 is where we're going to be today, and we've added a um, little QR code there if you want to access sermon slides uh, for today. Those are in our Google Drive folder. We used to make that QR code available in our um, bulletin that we did, and we haven't done bulletin since COVID, so you haven't really had access to that like you previously would have, and so uh, we wanted to give you that opportunity um, to have those each week if you want them. Um, you can always access those through uh, the QR code that, or the link that's also available through our podcast each week that's posted on the realm, so you're welcome to uh, pull those up at any point from previous sermons as well. We dump all of our Sunday morning slides there uh, each week. So we've been in Psalms now for several months, just kind of working through selected Psalms. We've seen some uh, different topical type uh, discussions that have come from that study. Uh, Last week we had our application Sunday where we tried to package a lot of what we've been talking about into some things to remember, some things to do. Um, We talked specifically last week about how um, what we've found in the book of Psalms is that God is so prone to remember us as his people, and yet we are so prone to forget him. Um, that we need reminders constantly of who he is and how he takes care of us, how he provides for us. And so we're going to continue to see that uh, as we work through our study in Psalms. Uh, today we come to Psalm chapter 32. I want to read that for us uh, before we jump into the text this morning. Um, we're also going to see some parallels between Psalm 32 and 1 John 1, which is where we've been studying in our C groups and our D groups over the past month. Uh, some consistent themes that are found in both of those chapters, and so we'll kind of see how this chapter works together with First John to give us a good understanding of confession and forgiveness and how we enjoy that through the blood of Jesus Christ. So let's look at Psalm chapter 32, verse 1. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and brittle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Our summary sentence for today. Blessed is the individual who is willing to uncover their sin and accept responsibility for their action by bringing their darkness into the light so that it can be covered by the grace of God and cleansed by the blood of Christ. Blessed is the individual who is willing to uncover their sin and accept responsibility for their action by bringing their darkness into the light so that it can be covered by the grace of God and cleansed by the blood of Christ. For kids, God tells us that he is willing to forgive our sin if we are willing to be honest about our sin. And we're going to see uh, that's the key concept found here 
in Psalm 32 and then also in 1 John 1, the idea of us being honest about our sin. Uh, The psalmist talks about in uh, verse 2, at the end of verse 2, uh, blessed being the one who spi- in, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Uh, the idea, as we're going to see in Psalm 32, is that there is no deceit towards himself about his own sin, that there's an honesty about our actions. Um, I had some students at Trinity that had to come see me in my office this week, a group of girls, um, and they've been in my office before uh, due to disobedience and disrespect towards the teacher, and they're typically... Uh, the type that come in uh, arguing for injustice about how the teacher has treated them. And uh, today I just wasn't going wasn't gonna to battle them. I just sat them down in my office and I said, girls, before we even get started, let's just be clear about one thing. Teachers don't send innocent students to me. They just don't. They don't have time to send to me students who have done no wrong. I said, so here's how we're going to have a conversation today. One, we're not going to argue about our innocence. Two, each of you is going to take responsibility for whatever part you played and why you are here in my office, and you're going to be honest about it. We're going to talk about it. I'm going to discipline you for it, and then we're going to move forward in forgiveness and restoration. They said, yes, sir. And I said, okay, let's start. You tell me what you did. You tell me what you did. And we went to all four of them, and they all honestly and willfully expressed what they had done wrong. We talked about what they should have done right. We talked about the consequences that were going to come. We talked about forgiveness and restoration and how we were going to move forward. That's the the pattern that we see here in Psalm 32. The responsibility that we have to be honest about our actions, to bring those forth into the light so that we can experience forgiveness. This concept of blessedness, it's real similar to what we saw in the um, Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. The other time that it's mentioned, if you're reading through the Psalms uh, in order, Then Psalm chapter 1 starts with a very similar idea of blessedness, right? So you go to Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. Psalm chapter 1 contrasts the wicked and the righteous, and you get this picture of the righteous doing the right thing, being in God's word, submitting to God's law, and then the wicked who don't. But in Psalm chapter 32, you find blessed is the individual who is wicked, right? Who is sinful, but knows what to do with that sin, right? It's an individual who doesn't hide and cover his sin, but instead brings his sin into the light to experience forgiveness. The idea being is that there is happiness to be enjoyed from knowing that God is for you and forgiving you. I mean, think about the themes here that we're seeing in Psalm 32, the idea of sin taking place, sin being confessed, but then forgiveness being enjoyed, right? Forgiveness being enjoyed by the individual who has been disobedient to God. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin has been covered. We as believers need God's forgiveness regularly, not just initially when we get saved, Right? The gospel isn't just for an initial forgiveness. It's for ongoing forgiveness too. Right? Regularly confessing our sin, regularly admitting our faults and failures, and regularly experiencing his forgiveness and restoration. There's this really cool video. I would encourage you to take a look at it. Um, and I'm, and I, I was going to show it, and then I opted not to because uh, the lady in the video recounts some of her sinful past and 
based on age groups that are in here, I just didn't want to create conversations where you didn't want to necessarily have conversations today. So I spared, you, I spared some of you some of that. But the, the, uh, the, the individual in the, the video, her name is Jackie Hill Perry, and so she talks about the gospel, and the statement that she keeps saying is um, that the gospel doesn't just save us, it keeps us too. Right? It certainly saves us and brings us into right relationship with God, but it also keeps us there as well. Right? So we, we regularly and ongoingly experience God's forgiveness, and we can experience the joy and happiness that comes from bringing that to God and having him forgive that and enjoying that relationship continually with him. We're going to see some of the, the, the cool things that are said here in Psalm 32 that reassure us that we have this experience with our Savior. Okay, but let's jump in and look at what the text has to say to us, um, how we can see that as individuals we're blessed if we're willing to uncover our sin, accept responsibility for our action, bring it from the darkness into the light so that it can be covered by the grace of God. Number one, we're going to see conviction and our responsibility to listen to the Holy Spirit. We see this in verse three through four. So we'll come back to verses one and two here in a minute. But we'll start by unpacking this chapter with looking at verses 3 and 4. The idea of conviction and our responsibility to listen to the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 3, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Think for a minute about what the word conviction means. What does the word conviction mean in our life? We know, number one, that the Lord graciously provides conviction when we sin against him. This is a a gracious gift by God where he gives us a knowledge and awareness of our sin, a conviction about needing to do something with it. And this is really for believers and unbelievers because Romans 2, 12 through 16 talks about the law being given to us and it being written on our hearts giving us a knowledge of right and wrong. So if you want to jot down Romans 2 and go back and look at that again, Romans 2 talks about how the individual who doesn't even have God's law is going to be held accountable to the law written on his heart. That the unrighteous, the the individual who's never been exposed to the things of God, he is prompted to do right things and to avoid wrong things that are consistent with God's word. Even though he's maybe never seen God's word, He has this law written on his heart that gives him knowledge of right and wrong, right? And so we experience those promptings, those those inward workings of our conscience that helps us to see right from wrong. It's a good gift from God. It's written on our hearts. But then John 16, verse 8, Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit is coming and he will give us more intentional conviction about right and wrong. So not just a general Uh, conscience that kind of tells us right and wrong, but spiritual knowledge that gives us even more direct understanding of what we should and should not be doing. John chapter 16, verse 8. When he comes, talking about the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So the Holy Spirit comes to redeem our conscience, to give us more clarity about what it looks like to live right and to avoid wrong. These are good gifts from God. He graciously provides conviction when we sin against him. But number two, 
The Lord graciously provides discipline when we fail to respond to conviction. Graciously provides discipline when we fail to respond to conviction. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. You read that section and we see, As a father who rightfully takes responsibility for his children's actions, God intervenes when we wander. Right? So if we, if we fail to yield to his conviction that he's given to us, right? we resist the, the conscience, we resist our Holy Spirit that's, that's prompting us towards right, then the Lord says he'll send discipline where needed to redirect us, to correct us, um, to put us back on the right path, right? Look what Charles Spurgeon says. God does not allow his children to sin successfully. God does not allow his children to sin successfully. That too is a good gift from God, right? Not just that he gives us conviction to know um, when we're sinful, how to get back on the right path, um, but if we fail to, to respond to that, then he's going to bring about discipline in our life to to get us back where we need to be. Conviction. The psalmist in 32 tells us that he ignored it. He said, I kept silent, and I didn't acknowledge my sin. Because of that, my bones wasted away. Uh, There was groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. This is kind of the (coughs) <coughs> maybe the inward um, uh, discipline taking place in his own heart and mind, right? Like God's not going to allow him to experience uh, ongoing joy and pleasure in his rebellion. He's going to bring him back to where he needs to be, right? So David's experiencing this when he was unwilling to confess his sin. God wasn't willing to leave him in that state. Right? So he brings about even further conviction through the discipline. Okay? That leads in then to confession. Right? So uh, we have a responsibility to yield to conviction, to not hide our sin, to listen to the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Excuse me. To listen to the Holy Spirit and to uncover our sin. To uncover our sin. Look at verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So David gets to the point where he acknowledges his sin. He gets to the point where he no longer covers his iniquity. He confesses the transgressions to the Lord, and he experiences the forgiveness. All right? So number one, we uncover, uh, or uncovering our sin requires honesty with ourselves. Honesty with ourselves. And this is where I want to draw your attention to 1 John and where we've been with our C group and D group discussion over the past month. 1 John chapter 1. Uncovering our sin requires honesty with ourselves. Here's the, uh, the interesting thing when we think about how different we are as individuals. Like uh, whether we come from this side of the world or the other, there are some consistencies in the way that we handle our sin. Think about that. Think about all the cultural differences, um, all the different ways that we're raised. Um, Even in the United States where 
northern culture, southern culture can be way different at times, right? There's things that are just different about who we are in the ways that we're raised. And yet, there's a universal consistency in the ways that we handle our sin, right? Think about, think about these things. Uh, we have a tendency to hide our sin, to lie about our sin, to blame others for our sin, and to minimize our sin. We hide it, we lie about it, we blame others for it, and we minimize it. And this is an inherited thing rather than a learned thing. You don't have to teach people. You don't have to teach people. Your kids don't have to learn to hide their sin or to lie about it, to cover it, to minimize it. They're just prone to do that, right? Why I have to have conversations with students about I'm expecting honesty, not what you're going to be tempted to do right now, right? Be honest and forthcoming with me about your actions. Don't do what I know you're going to be tempted to do to hide it, to cover it, to minimize it, to blame others for it. We get this, obviously, from Adam and Eve. We see this in Genesis 3, right? Think back to the story in in the garden. Adam and Eve sin. We're told that God shows up in the garden. We're told that they immediately hide from him, right? They hide. And then God brings them forth, and what's their response? Well, they start blaming other people for their sin, right? Yes, I did this, but... It's the other person's fault. Like, I only did it because of the implications of somebody else pushing me in that direction. Then you see their offspring, Cain, doing something very similar, too. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, Adam and Eve have Cain and Abel. There's jealousy and frustration about the offerings of God or offerings to God between the two brothers. And it says in verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel's brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. Right? Cain denies and and, and covers and, and plays dumb as far as knowing what God's even talking about, right? This denial of sin, he hides it, he lies about it. Then God gives him a curse, and what's crazy is that Cain says, your punishment is greater than I can bear. Look what he says, verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, And from your your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Think about the irony there. Cain has just killed his brother in just cold blood, right? Out of jealousy for what he was doing with God. Kills him. God comes and punishes Cain and allows him to live, right? Allows him to live, but banishes him in such a way where he may end up dying. And Cain says, God, this is too great because somebody might kill me. He has minimized what he has done, killing somebody, and has said, if I were to be killed for it, the punishment would be far greater than what I could bear. He's minimized his sin. He has failed to see the seriousness of what he had done to his brother. And this is the universal response we have towards sin. Hiding it, blaming others, trying to conceal it, minimizing it, rather than bringing it into the light. 
And even a denial of sin usually leads to worse sin, right? Like once we fail to own up responsibility to the things that we've done, typically leads us deeper into sin. David's a great example of that who wrote Psalm 32, right? He fails to acknowledge his sin with Bathsheba, leads him into deeper sin, right? Once he starts trying to cover it, then he has to go to further sin to cover it more, right? To try to hide his trail, he has to keep delving into deeper and deeper sin. But 1 John chapter 1 gives us some insight into the honesty that we have to have with ourselves. So look at 1 John chapter 1, particularly verse 8. So again, confession starts with uncovering our sin, being honest with ourselves. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and all and the truth is not in us. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. You'll remember from our study, hopefully, that the chapter begins with a correlation between light and darkness, and that Christ is all light, God is all light, there is no darkness in him. And then we see the darkness really lying with mankind. And this passage here, verses 8 through 10, gives us application for what it looks like to walk in the light, to come out of the darkness of cover-ups and self-deception about our sin. So 1 John 1, 8 tells us that we must avoid lying to ourselves about our sin. To say we aren't guilty when we feel conviction is to lie to ourselves. We think too highly of ourselves and we interact with others like we've done nothing wrong and we do not need to pursue forgiveness and reconciliation. We show ourselves to be in darkness because we are unwilling to admit truth about ourselves. John even says the truth, therefore, is not in us. Okay, so see what John's saying. He's saying, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Well, how does John know that we know that we have sin? Because the Lord has given that gift to us. He's given us the ability to be convicted of our sin as believers to even see that conviction in a more clear way through the Holy Spirit. If we say that we have no sin, we're lying to ourselves. We're ignoring the conviction that God gives to us. So confession means uncovering our sin and being honest with ourselves about our sin number two uncovering our sin requires honesty with god as well it involves honesty with god too you see in verse 10 if we say we have not sinned we make him a liar and his word is not in us so not only when we fail to confess sin are we lying to ourselves we're also lying about god or we're calling him a liar about us because we're saying, you know what? There is no sin here to confess. I'm lying to myself about the conviction that I feel, but I'm also calling God a liar because God tells me that I have sin as well. I put in my notes, there is a lying that we can do regarding God as well. This extends beyond just lying to ourselves when convicted by our conscience. Now we are lying in that we deny doing the very things God says are sinful. We make him a liar because he says we are guilty of disobeying him. To deny this is to deny both that he is an authority we should submit to and that ultimately we have failed to submit to him. This is an indicator that we remain in darkness because we're unwilling to step into the light. The clear sign that his word has taken root in our heart and our life is that we acknowledge the truth of it by seeing our sin rather than denying it. Right? So when we say that we have no sin to confess, we're calling God a liar. We're denying his word. It's not in us. The truth isn't in us. Number three, uncovering our sin requires our humble acknowledgement 
rather than our prideful efforts of atonement. There is a need to confess our sins to bring them into the light as a sign that we're in the light ourselves by acknowledging them before God and man. We have a need to confess at times to God and then a lot of times where we need to confess to our brothers and sisters as well. Now, in our D group, we started discussing about <clears throat> how does chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, mesh with what we see right before it. So look what, what 1 John tells us in verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in, walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not practice the truth. So you, you read that, and you're thinking, okay, and this is kind of where we were at in our group. It's like, man, like you read this and God is light, no darkness at all. And, and we're supposed to walk in the light and not in darkness, which means, you know, we've got to be like God. Well, then how do we mesh the fact that we're supposed to also confess the sin because we don't want to admit that we've got sin because that means we're in darkness and we shouldn't have darkness if we're a believer, right? I think the key to understanding both these sections is verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. I think verse 7 clues us into what it means to walk in the light and not walk in darkness. It's not so much that John is emphasizing sin versus no sin. I think what he's really emphasizing here is that the believer who has truth dwelling in him, who has God's word dwelling in him, He's the individual who steps into the light with his sin, right? He walks in the light by walking in the light with his sin uncovered, bringing it to Christ for forgiveness. Because verse 7 tells us walking in the light means that we have fellowship. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, right? So the idea here is that as a believer, we walk in the light, not in darkness, by walking into the light with our sin to experience the forgiveness that comes from Jesus Christ. To stay back and say that we have no sin is to really stay in darkness, not because we have committed sinful things, but because we are unwilling to be honest about our sin. That's the difference between the believer and the unbeliever. The believer is willing to step into the light and say, I am a sinner, and here is my sin, completely uncovered. I'm not going to hide it. I'm not going to blame others for it. I'm not going to minimize it. I'm going to bring it to you for what it is. And I'm going to expect you to be the God of Exodus 34 who says, I'm merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. Right? We come to this God expecting him to forgive us. Why? Because he's proclaimed himself to be that type of God. The believer steps into the light, out of the darkness, with his sin for the experience of forgiveness. Walking in the light is not an expectation that we never sin. On the contrary, by walking in the light, we reveal our need for his blood to cleanse us from the sin that we bring into the light regularly. We must avoid the tendency to minimize our confession and instead pursue acts of atonement, whereby we acknowledge our sin by trying to fix it with acts of service. Now, this is where I confess to my D group, this is what I do, <clears throat> right? Like, I experience conviction of my sin, but instead of just simply humbly acknowledging it and confessing it, particularly to other people, but even as well to God, 
Instead of confessing and, and demonstrating humility by saying, God, I've sinned against you, or Lauren, I've sinned against you, or AJ, Abram, I've sinned against you, what I typically do is I try to atone for that sin by doing something to fix it, by doing something to correct it, by doing something to make up for it, right? And that's not confession either. feels like it because we're, 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 we're wrestling in ourselves saying, okay, I know I'm sinful. I know I've done something wrong right? I've said something to Lauren or done something to Lauren that I shouldn't have, so I'm going to go clean the dishes, right? Or I'm going to go make lunches for the kids. Because what that does for me is it makes me feel better because I did something wrong, but now I've done something right. And that should just make it okay for everybody, right? And yet what's happened is there's been no acknowledgement to Lauren that I've done anything wrong against her, even though she knows it and I know it. But I'm just expecting that things should be fine because I've done something to fix it. I do the same things with God, too. Right? If I mess up and sin against him, I'm going to try to autocorrect and do something to fix that versus simply just acknowledging that, hey, I've, I've been wrong. I've done wrong. Because here's the thing. I can't atone for it. Right? If I sin against Lauren or one of my kids, if I sin against one of you in our church, washing the dishes doesn't make up for that. Right? That's a poor sacrifice. Right? It's only Christ's sacrifice and his blood that can atone for my wickedness. I need to bring it from the darkness into the light and say, here's what I've done. Not try to hide it, not try to cover it, not try to minimize it, but to acknowledge it right? and experience the forgiveness that comes from it. Confession is uncovering our sin, being honest about our sin. Number three, cleansing then is what we see in verses one and two. So back in Psalm chapter 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Look what he does here. Number one, he covers our sin when we are willing to uncover it. Do you see the parallel here? It sounds contradictory because it says, Blessed is the one whose sin is covered, But then in verse 5, it talks about not covering our sin, right? I acknowledged my sin and I did not cover my iniquity, and yet blessed is the one whose sin is covered. The difference here is that I'm trying to cover my sin myself versus giving it to God and letting him cover it with the blood of Christ. Because we do need our sin to be covered. And we do our very best like Adam and Eve to cover it with fig leaves right, to try to bury it and hide it and excuse it and, and, and minimize it and make it look better than it is. We decorate our sin with the fig leaves. And then Jesus has to come in and say, uh-uh, like you're not fooling anybody. And it's God who provides the better clothing to Adam and Eve in the garden because he acknowledges, no, you do need to be covered, right? Your nakedness has become known. You do need to be covered, but this covering doesn't work. This covering is man-made and it doesn't, it doesn't work right? He covers our sin when we're willing to uncover it ourselves. The path to forgiveness starts with honesty, uncovering and admitting our sin so that God can cover it for us. And what we find in 1 John 1, 9 is the assurance, the, the comfort that if we will do this, we find the type of God that we need waiting for us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful 
He's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I, re- I referenced Exodus 34 earlier. He desires to be known and experienced as a God who's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. So we come to him with our sin and we experience him in that way. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. The God who knows all of our sin is always willing to forgive all of our sin as well. Number two, not only does he cover our sin, he counts his righteousness to our account rather than our sin. He counts righteousness to our account rather than our sin. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So he doesn't count our iniquity against us. The idea of being forgiven means that our sin is carried away. The idea of him covering it carries the idea of atonement, which we've talked about. But now we're talking about our account and charges against our account. And he doesn't count them against us. Genesis 15, 6, the same word is used when talking about Abraham believing God and it was counted to him as righteousness, right? Not because Abraham had done any good works, but because he believed God, his account, his account was marked as righteous versus versus sinful, versus wicked. Read in, let's read in uh, Romans chapter 4. Because Paul takes both the idea of Genesis and Psalm 32 and combines them in his argument. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. What, sh- what then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Right? If Abraham was justified because he did the dishes for Sarah or because he made lunches for Isaac, then, then he has something to boast about, right? Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Verse 7, he now quotes from Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. What Paul's talking about here is that when you look at our account, what should be there is sin. God should be counting our sins against us. And yet what he does when we come confessing and experiencing his forgiveness is that he covers that. He wipes that out. He blots that out on our ledger. It's no longer there. And instead, righteousness is, is applied there. Right? So for those of you that get like a, a bank statement or a credit card statement, you may see charges that are there based on your expenditures from the previous month. And you're expected to pay those because you earned those, those, those charges, right? You did things, you bought things, you experienced things, and now you have to pay for them. But imagine, imagine getting your credit card statement after you just went on vacation and you know you swiped it, but there's nothing there, right? Like, you just get it, and you're like, whoa, like, we just had a really great week. 
and apparently we're not going to have to pay for it, right? Also, imagine getting your credit card statement and knowing I didn't spend anything last month and seeing charge after charge after charge after charge and then not calling the bank company and disputing those things because that's what Christ does, right? Like Christ gets our sin applied to his account and doesn't fight against it. He just pays for it, right? And we get our account that says we don't owe anything and we're looking around going, this is crazy because I do owe a lot. I've done a lot. That's the gospel, right? That he takes our charges and pays for our charges and we don't pay for anything. We don't pay for anything, not because we were good, not because we were good, but because he paid the price for us. And it's not just that initial conversion. It's the gospel that keeps us. It keeps saving us. Every day when we sin, we bring that sin into the light and we experience his forgiveness over and over and over again. Lastly, number four, the counsel that comes from being forgiven. We've seen conviction. David initially doesn't listen to it, but eventually comes around to listening to it, confesses it, uncovers his sin. He's honest with himself. He's honest with God. He humbly acknowledges his sin, doesn't try to atone for it himself. He experiences the cleansing, the cleansing that comes from being saved, from having his sin covered, from having his, his account wiped clean. And then we see in verse 6, Therefore, let everyone who is godly often offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. This counsel is for us to trust and obey him now that we've been forgiven. Number one, we need to see God as our hiding place. We come to hide our sinful selves in him, not from him. He says in verse 7, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. The gospel of substitution, which is what, we, what I just described to you, right? The gospel of substitution makes him to be our refuge who otherwise would have been our judge. Right? That's beautiful. The gospel of substitution makes him to be our refuge who otherwise would have been our judge. Right? We ought to feel like Adam and Eve, that we need to run and hide from him because we've sinned against him. And yet he invites us to come and hide in him. Right? Don't hide from him and cover your sin away from him. Bring your sin to him. Hide in him as a, as a place of refuge. He becomes our dwelling place where he also covers our sin for us. Number two, we're pardoned so that we might learn to live for him willingly. He says, I'm going to teach you and instruct you in the ways that you should go. He challenges us, don't be like a horse or a mule that only obeys his master because he's, he's bound to with the, the straps and the, the, the instruments that are placed upon him. He says, don't, don't be obedient to God simply because you're being driven to do that. Don't live just for God because you have to to avoid the consequences. He wants us to see that, 
by being forgiven, we can live for him willingly. Number three, we're surrounded with steadfast love and shouts of deliverance when we remain close to him. This is where the gospel sustains us and keeps us on a daily basis because even as I continue to sin, I don't have to read 1 John 1 and think that my my salvation is up for debate, right? I don't have to say, oh man, like he is light and, and there is no darkness in him. What do I do now? Because I'm still dark. No, walking in the light means that I just keep bringing my darkness into the light for him to forgive, right? To experience the restoration of remaining in fellowship with him. Steadfast love, shouts of deliverance are what we find when we bring honesty honest acknowledgement of our sin to him. Number four, we keep ourselves in the habit of confessing when we rightfully celebrate and sing of the joys of his forgiveness. We keep ourselves in the habit of confessing when we rightfully celebrate and sing of the joys of his forgiveness. Look what verse 10 and 11 say. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Man, if we really acknowledge our sin and bring it to God, and we experience his forgiveness, the natural thing to do is to sing about it. We've talked about this throughout our study in Psalms. It is natural for believers to sing of the greatness of God, to sing of the forgiveness of God. And if that will be our our norm, if our norm is to bring sin into the light, experience his forgiveness, and to sing and shout in jubilation for what he has done for us, man, it reminds us to bring it the next time too, right? That we don't have to worry about woe being experienced, sorrow being experienced when we bring our sins to God. We don't have to hide from him. We run and hide in him. This last quote comes from Michael Wilcock, who's author of one of the commentaries I've been reading. Happy are those who are not righteous, but know what to do about it. That's kind of the the, the summary of Psalm 32. Happy are those who are not righteous, but they know what to do about it, right? They they know that they're sinful, and they know what to do about their sin. It's to, to resist the universal mindset of hide it, cover it, deny it, minimize it what people do no matter what part of the world they come from. Happy is the one who's, un, who's, who's not righteous but knows what to do about it to bring that sin into the light to experience forgiveness. Application for us today, two parts. Number one, how are you prone to respond to conviction about sin? What is your natural tendency? Think about these universal ways that I've told you that we deal with our sin typically. There's probably one area that's more specific to you than maybe some of the others. Are you, are you prone to lie about it? Are you prone to minimize it? Are you prone to, to, to cover it, to blame others for it? Maybe you're like me. You're prone to try to atone for it yourself by doing things to fix it. Think about what, what, what are you finding as your tendency to do when you, when you experience sin. If it's not what Psalm 32 is talking about, where we bring it into the light and we confess it and experience forgiveness, what is your tendency to do? Because number two, we want to commit to pushing back against that tendency and commit to bringing sin into the light quickly where forgiveness is found, not if found, where forgiveness is found. 
Godly people aren't perfect, but they aren't silent either. They're faithful to confess their sin. Let me say that to you again. Godly people aren't perfect, but they aren't silent either. They're faithful to confess their sin. I want to close with these two verses. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13 and 14. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Right? We don't conceal our transgressions. We don't cover our transgressions. We bring them to him so that he can cover them. But it says, blessed is the one who fears the Lord, not the one who hardens his heart with, because uh, he'll fall into calamity. That idea of fearing the Lord ties in with Psalm chapter 130, though. This is the last thing we'll read. Psalm 130. Verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Lord, if you did mark our iniquities down on our account, nobody could stand, right? We know Romans 3 says that every mouth would be stopped. Nobody could stand before God and boast of their good works. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Verse 4. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Isn't that interesting? Forgiveness that leads to fear. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the truths of Psalm 32. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the fact that you you've made everything necessary for our forgiveness possible by sending your son Jesus who's righteous and perfect on our behalf who's also willing to take our sin and atone for it in ways that we never could thank you Lord for covering our sin and God give us a willingness to be honest about our sin moving forward Lord, help us to see that we don't need to cover our sin, that we can come to you. We don't have to hide our sin. We can come and hide ourselves in you. Lord, help us to see that our attempts to cover are just not good enough to hide it. But Lord, help us to see that when we bring our sin into the light, you take our darkness and you cover it with the blood of your Son. And we can be named amongst the blessed. We can be named amongst those who you do not count sin against. You do not count iniquity against. Lord, help us to push back our tendencies to, to be dishonest about our sin. Help us instead to fight, to bring our sin to you so that we can rightfully celebrate your greatness and your goodness when we experience your mercy and your steadfast love. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.